Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Tamang Sangam Namasami It's almost a week since we began this journey and we've developed here a wonderful silence and presence. And you may not notice it because each of us is busy cultivating our own little path through the wilderness within our own hearts. But the effect, the cumulative effect, is very powerful. It reminds me of people who come up to the monastery and we might be working hard and uh, tired and things haven't gone right and uh, something has arrived or something has arisen that is stressful and there's so many things going on. Someone arrives and we come to greet them and they say, it's so peaceful here. Uh, It's such a lovely atmosphere. And we're looking at them and nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Because even though there may be many obstacles, we've we've come there, we've come to the monastery to stay. We're not just passing through. And we're willing to overcome every obstacle day by day, breath by breath, moment by moment. Because the path is our commitment. And when we commit ourselves to that which we truly value and know is precious, then the strength comes from a place we didn't know existed, from a a resource that we're just discovering. And so it is here. If someone had told you a few years ago, or before you discovered this practice, that you could sit without talking, just eating one main meal a day uh, with 80 people in a room somewhere in the country for a week or nine days, you would just look at them like, well, not me. You would doubt that. And most of the world does doubt it. Most of the world doesn't honor or treasure silence, as we have noticed. And it's important to be busy and occupied all the time. But the occupation that we have here as difficult and subtle 
as it may be is truly magnificent and we have a right this is our inalienable right to practice this way in the world the conventional world um, inalienable rights are spoken of in a different way they have to do with um, what we're free to pursue what we're free to do like uh, freedom of speech and I'm sorry I'm not American (laughs) I just caught myself in hot water (laughs) but nowhere do I see uh, in any government charter or charter of the people nowhere, nowhere do I see ethical precepts and an inalienable right for human beings is to awaken to the truth of this human journey of why we're here what are we doing here and how can we best live as human beings and our inalienable right is to free the mind of its impurities and to go beyond suffering to go beyond our suffering we need to purify the mind and free it from all the hindrances and all the preoccupations the worries the angry thoughts the sensual desire that drives us that drive us these these things that come passing through the untrained mind drive us in so many directions but as we can see most of us have had experiences of pursuing a particular path and not finding the fulfillment we were looking for but we have the right to follow this path and to awaken in such a way that our happiness will be fulfilled we will find that happiness but it's very subtle and hard to to understand and therefore we have to be silent to witness the way through the wilderness of the mind so it's a training and in a society where we're so used to things happen in, happening instantly um, more and more speedily than ever uh, like there's one minute oatmeal and there's tea bags people used to steep the tea but now you don't have to steep it you just it's all in a bag and put it in and it's quickly ready and such things but on this path we have to soak the mind we have to soak it in goodness to to launder it to cleanse it soak it in the goodness so that we can be strong enough to see more clearly to make the mind like a mirror what is the purpose of a mirror the Buddha asked Rahula his little son who became an arahant and the purpose of a mirror is to reflect to reflect and the purpose of the mind as a mirror is to reflect for us what is true 
But if the mind is full of other things, like dust, the dust of, of our life, as thick dust, because we've gone many different directions, some of us. When I look back on my life, it's like so many lives that I lived before I became a nun. And then 25 years ago, I became a nun. And because of being aware that there was a path, and it was a path that had clarity, it would give me clarity. It would help me understand myself better. So it's very good every once in a while, in between the inner crises and the opinions and self-judgments that come up while we're practicing here together, to stop and remember why we came. Why did we come here? And go back to that beautiful intention and just brighten our, our posture, our resolve, strengthen our patience, feel the gratitude of this opportunity and not be so wound up in a knot and tight about the ins and outs of the practical practicalities or technicalities. But how can we make this work for ourselves? So that it's important for us to remember that a training happens in its time. If we apply ourselves regularly, we can't force it, just like an artist, or if any of you have ever taken up calligraphy. It takes really, really years before a calligraphy student can do a stroke masterfully. And someone was telling me recently that the way that you can know a master calligrapher from an adept student, who's not yet a master but can do very well, is that at the end of the letter, the student's stroke has a a tiny bit of a wavering in it. But the master's stroke comes to a complete stop. And this action of stopping is what we're doing here. But the aim is to stop completely. But most of us are coming from whirling in the world, from spinning, high-speed spinning. And until we can actually stop, it takes getting used to that, and it takes adjustment. If, you, if you've ever gone deep-sea diving, I never have, but I'm told, <laughs> that if you come up too quickly, then you, you get the bends. It's a lot, very painful experience. I think Ayanimala has done deep-sea diving, and she knows about this. So here we are like deep-sea divers um, who are coming up for real air, the real fresh air from the, the deep recesses of uh, our jobs, our, the burden of our lives, earning a living, taking care of a family, the duties and responsibilities of daily life. So 
if we come up too quickly, it, of course, because we're used to getting things quickly, it's going to be painful. But that, those pains are natural. As long as we don't do it uh, too ambitiously, then we could break or injure ourselves. So it's a gradual training, a gradual process. Just like the ocean, when you go into the ocean in many places, if you want to swim, first you start in the shallow water and you check it out. And little by little you go deeper and deeper. And then you can learn to be a deep sea diver and find the real treasures. I just reversed that image. <laughs> there are so many ways of seeing the project. <laughs> the Buddha uh, gave a discourse in which uh, he says that if, if a disciple wishes to uh, purify the mind or abandon defilements, abandon the hindrances, then, um, and if he were to wish that with all his might or her might, doesn't matter, if this person were to wish with all their heart that the hindrances would just leave forever, stop forever, so that we could sit in absolute uh, wonder and bliss at the purity of the mind, then that wouldn't happen unless they put in the causes and conditions. I'm rephrasing. Unless we apply the right effort, four right efforts, the five mental faculties in the right way, the four bases of success, the seven factors of enlightenment, all these different tools that the Buddha has given us and fulfill the eight limbs of the Noble Eightfold Path, then even no matter how much we would wish it, we couldn't purify our minds and realize the truth or true happiness, true peace. We would never get nibbana The candle would never blow out. The suffering would never end. And he makes the comparison to uh, a hen sitting on, on eggs. And even if that hen were to wish, may these little eggs hatch and these little chicks come out with all her heart, unless she were to sit on those eggs for the right amount of time and warm them to the right temperature that until they cracked, the little chicks would not be able to come out. And even if she didn't want them to come out, but she sat for the right amount of time and developed the right temperature and warmth uh, and uh, incubation period for those chicks to mature and develop, they would still come out. So it is with the spiritual practitioner if we put in the right causes and conditions, then even if we don't want to get enlightened, we will. 
and more so if we want it. <laughs> but if there, there's, a, there's another uh, two analogies, one of them is to a carpenter's ads. I'm not a carpenter, so I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Dante, do you know? Yeah, it's a kind of scraping tool. Scraping tool. For, for uh, carving wood. A scraping tool for carving wood. Thank you. <laughs> so, if a carpenter uh, looks at the handle of the ads, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. And he may not see his fingerprints in that, but when it's worn out, then he'll know it's worn out. He won't be able to use it anymore. He may not see the effect of, of his grip on it and, and the wearing and tearing on that tool until it's worn out. And so, the same way with us, we may not realize the value of the effort that we're putting in by stopping, restraining our senses, eating little, sleeping little, staying in this confined space, not talking to each other, not finding out each other's biographies. And we don't even, you know, I, I, I might know one or two of you, although I've spoken to about 50 of you or more, but not really knowing. But we know each other in the practice. That's where we gain a real friendship, an intimacy. It's through going in the same direction with our, our minds, directed towards what is true. And we may not realize how much truth we're beginning to understand, or how much we're gaining ground over the defilements or the hindrances. We're making peace, space for peace in our hearts, moment by moment day by day now for seven days, we may not realize how much of the burden and stress that we've been carrying has lifted. Just like the carpenter can't judge, but he can tell when his tool, when the handle is worn out. And we can tell when we leave here, because we'll come out just feeling so refreshed, so renewed, so restored. Because this is such a tremendous antidote to the madness of the world. I spoke about this a little bit in one of the groups. I remember my teacher in India, um, when I, I told him about the madness of my mind, and he, and he said, it's the world that is mad. What we're doing is clarifying, gaining clarity. But the world is mad. The world may call us mad, but it's the world that is mad. There's so much goodness in the world, but there's also so much confusion and madness. And that affects us. We get drawn into it. So when we come in here, it's like soaking the mind in, in the silence which is, is pure. It's rarefied atmosphere. And the third image that is also very lovely is uh, the ships 
that with their their tall masts and their uh, all the um, ropes of a ship are used to help sail that ship. But when the ship lies on the shore uh, and is not used, then um, after some time, the masts and, and ropes and all the tools that are used to sail it just rot. And the same happens with the defilements. If we stop practicing anger, if we stop following greed, if we stop believing desire and delusion in the mind, and instead we bring up the good qualities of sharp and appropriate attention, wisdom, clarity, clarifying the mind, coolness, serenity, patience, renunciation, wisdom, the wisdom eye, seeing the effort to pursue that, to sustain it, to keep abandoning what harms us or what prevents us from seeing, loving-kindness and compassion, and constantly investigating what is true and what isn't true. What isn't true, we abandon it. What's true, we hold it, we cultivate it. And virtue, the inner virtue, is, is the restraint of the mind. Then we begin to uh, abandon and not nurture that which harms us. And those, the fetters, they begin to rot. They lose their hold on us. So all our opinions and judgments, our fears, our trepidation, our anxiety, these things lose their hold on, we disempower them. Little by little. And this is, the, the Buddha said that patience is the highest austerity. Patience is the highest austerity. I remember once uh, I went for a dana to the home of one of our community members and her young son, it was his birthday, and uh, I was giving them a little bit of dhamma teaching in, in child kind of language. And I, asked, I said to him, um, you, you have to be patient to get all these, you have to wait a whole year to get a whole new set of presents. And then I asked him, what does patience mean? And he said, not getting what you want. (laughs) I think he was five. That's a wonderful insight. So, (laughs) here we are. We're not getting what we want, what the senses want, what we've been trained to want. And... The mega companies are very clever. We had a little discussion about this because they market things in in such a way that we we just we want them before they're even produced. Uh, this planned obsolescence, like of cell phones and such, people line up to buy the latest, and then I'm told that someone said that it it's obsolete after 18 months. 
but we were, we're going to wait in line for the next one too. But we have, so we have patience for those things. <laughs> and they don't last. They're so impermanent. And we don't notice that. We're constantly ransoming our hearts to things that don't last. It, that's a madness. Not that these things don't serve I don't, mean in, I don't mean that in ultimate sense. Conventionally, they're very useful. But if we depend on our possessions and our experiences on a worldly level to give us a lasting happiness, they just can't. They're not capable of that. We're, we're squeezing the, the fruit that is already... It, it, it can't produce. It's already past its die-by date. But this teaching is universal teaching, and it's ancient. It's been, this wheel of truth has been turning for 2,600 years or so. 2,605 years ago, I believe. (laughs) The Buddha gained his enlightenment, and shortly thereafter, when the Brahma Sahampati requested that he teach those with little dust in their eyes out of compassion. Then he began to turn this wheel of Dhamma. And even if in our practice all we can offer up, like we were chanting, um, that we offer these simple things, we bring these simple offerings uh, to the Blessed One, even if all we have to offer is our patience, our patient endurance with the unremitting force of the defilements that are rushing around within us out of habit, unskillful habits, then let us be patient until they subside. Let us continue to patiently observe and know them for what they are and let them go. not cling in the wrong way, not identify my anger, my sadness, my sorrow, and become burdened and heavy and unable to endure, overly sensitive and negative. And then, of course, the stress of the world just knocks us down again and again. But if we can reflect on this path and our inalienable right to walk this path and develop these strengths, then we just have to be patient for one more breath. We don't have to figure out the whole path. It doesn't really work that way, for me anyway. I find that in times of struggle or or crisis, around me or within, if I can just come back to the rudimentary breath by breath, moment by moment, knowing what is the mind doing and giving uh, right attention to that, not reacting with greed, hatred and delusion, but responding skillfully, is this wholesome or not wholesome? And if it's unwholesome, how can we abandon it? 
How can we remove it? I tried to think of some words that would help us remember a few options that are available to us. And this is from a sutta called The Removal of Distracting Thoughts. And it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. And um, one, of th- one option is that whenever an unwholesome thought or feeling arises in the mind, heart, we can displace that, substitute something wholesome. And we have to do that because we understand the danger of lingering with things that contract and weigh us down. There's a danger in that. So we displace and substitute uh, the, just like if you have a fever, you don't sit and try to understand, well, how did I get this fever? And, and let's see, how long has it lasted? And um, what other fevers are there that I can be getting? And like, this is, you know, distracted thinking. When we have a very high fever, we need to take the medicine. And then after we take the medicine, we can look back and contemplate and reflect in the clear mirror of the mind what kind of dis-ease that was that afflicted us. In the same way, if we're suffering from mental disease, we're all, you know, we're all suffering from mental dis-ease. How can we remedy it? Any homeopaths here? You ever heard of rescue remedy? We could just get out the rescue remedy. So when there's passions, we need to uh, settle the heart, restrain. When there's anger, we need to bring up uh, goodwill. If there's aversion of any kind, negativity, bring up uh, forgiveness if we can't bring up goodwill, but at least bring up a wholesome quality in the mind that creates more space in the heart because the aversion will crowd us out of our own hearts. And if we really want to abide in in unconditional loving kindness, then we need to breathe in and out and look at the blessing of our life and realize, I'm on the path. I can bear this. I have patience enough for one more breath. Even that. We're not getting what we want, but we're getting what is healthy for us. Because what we want is based on greed, hatred, and delusion, not on wisdom, restraint, renunciation, understanding of what is healthy for the mind. So to substitute or displace a a passion, an unwholesome mind state, with something that is cooling and virtuous and beneficial, that strengthens the mind, that gives us refuge, that we can trust, that isn't going to shake us or turn us upside down, but it's going to give us endurance and resilience. And the second way is, of course, to immediately reflect on how dangerous 
these kinds of mind states. And we are, and we need a bit of wisdom to understand when we're in trouble. And this also is best supported by very sharp mindfulness. That's what we've been doing here. Actually, what we've been doing is um, getting the diagnosis and taking the medicine quickly. Like, mindfulness is uh, applied to the object and we let it go. And right there, we're not hanging on to the objects no matter how appealing they are. And we're not indulging in them to try to figure out how they got there and what we can do with it, no matter how awful they seem. However, if we note the danger and the object will not desist, it will not leave us, then we need to um, take our attention away from that. It's like don't fight a dragon head on because it'll come from behind and whip you with its tail. It's like the porcupine that I meet at my meditation hut from time to time. Uh, After an evening session, I come back and I, I know it's there. I can see it in the shadows. And you don't come up to a porcupine and try to chase it away because they're very quick and just like a dragon, though they're very pretty small, they're their tail will come out and a bunch of sharp needles will go flying in your direction. So what I usually do is I make a very, I make, put my arms out and try to look much bigger than I am. (laughs) And I make a very kind of huffing and puffing noise because they don't know English. (laughs) And then the cute little porcupine kind of, okay, turns around and scuttles away. But if I were to try to uh, confront it and come too close, so we have to know when the, the burden that is making, appearing, the stress or whatever else is hidden in the mind and suddenly manifesting, if that comes up and it's just overwhelming, then turn the mind to something else, something that in our life that gives us ease. Uh, Remember a friend or go to the body. Find some refuge. If you have a strong refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, then take refuge right then and there. I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha, to my spiritual friends. Or remember your teacher, and sometimes I try to think, what would Ajahn Chah do? What would Sayada Upandita do? What would my mom and dad do? Because they were very teachers to me. What would they do? They would tell me, relax, take it easy. Go walk for a few minutes, do some walking meditation. Then come back and try the mindfulness again. So by ignoring, you know, then, or, or giving attention to a more suitable object when things are really in a crisis mode, then we can return strengthened and face what needs to be faced because none of it stands a chance. No, there's no defilement 
that can stand the power of the light of Dhamma, the power of truth. If we shine it strongly enough on any obstacle that arises in consciousness, we can deflate that, dispel it, disarm it. But we need to do it patiently, creatively, wisely, not overestimate our limits. So in this way, we accomplish also the fourth uh, way of dealing with these hindrances, hindrances in the mind, and that's we disempower them. We just go to the root of what's causing this problem. We go away or we, we stop and ponder for a while and contemplate, and we discover underneath, we may not be aware immediately, but if we use sharp mindfulness and wise discernment to check in, like, what is really behind this feeling of fear? What is it? It's fear of the fear, sometimes. Or it's just the way we've been trained, or we've trained ourselves, unknowingly, through not understanding how to restrain our our mental process, or our sense doors, our our senses, or how to restrain um, our choices in life. And we've gone into situations that were fearful and that we we couldn't handle. So then that just compounds it. Going to the root and understanding that, then maybe we can just breathe more deeply into that and disempower the present moment fear, because in fact, what's happening in the present is not as fearful as we think, but it's pushing a button. And so it becomes magnified, especially here in this situation like uh, just being afraid of, of the opinions we have about ourselves or the opinions that somebody else has about us. That might come up. Or we may be very angry at what somebody else is doing or the way they breathe. But that's because we have trained ourselves for such a long time with an ignorant outlook not aware of how much uh, unwholesomeness we practice day by day, how much uh, our minds are distracted and not aware of the forces that we're following in our hearts, which are not healthy. We feed the mind on an unhealthy diet, never mind the body. So if if you have the the Burger King meal of the hindrances over and over again. I hope there's, I'm not violating any kind of, I shouldn't mention any brands. <laughs> then, you know, it's like someone, I never saw this, we don't watch movies, but I heard about this film called Super Size Me. And this person got so sick from eating these, these fast foods. And our minds get sick from these instant experiences. So we come here to soak ourselves. It's like, Dhamma is like a, a, a gentle, 
bleaching agent, but a biodegradable one. (laughs) (laughs) Last but not least of these five options to remove the distracting thoughts, the poisonous thoughts, the, the defiling thoughts, is if nothing else works, then we really have to take drastic measures. <laughs> we have to crush, crush the thought, uh, clench our teeth, like grit our teeth and just bear it, just plow through it, just roll through it, the way uh, the tractors and the diggers were just digging up the dirt, you know, with these huge claws, just grabbing it and putting it somewhere else. So just reach in there with your sharp mindfulness, grab that little stain out of the mind and remove it as best you can, but never give up. And even if we remove it only for a moment, it's going to come back. But at least we know that we haven't believed in it. We haven't identified with it. We don't trust it anymore. And we're not going to, we don't want it to take up the precious space in our hearts. We want to clear that space out. Why? Because why did we come here? We want to find our way out of the wilderness, back to the place of refuge, the retreat, the forest refuge, the center point of our being, the center of our strength and our wisdom, so that we can go back into the world and carry this, this, this ability to abandon what is unhealthy for the heart and not be plowed over by worldly pressures and impacts at the five sense doors and the mind. It's much easier to do this as a monastic because, you know, if somebody takes me into a shopping mall, there's very little, I have no money. (laughs) And I don't, like in the drugstore, there's all these counters of, you know, different hair products. <laughs> I, I just need a razor. <laughs> and the fashion shops, you know, it's just a, a sheet made up of many little uh, patches. What the Buddha gave us for our requisites are rag robes. Rag robes to wear. A roof over our heads for one night. Alms food from whatever people give us. And fermented urine as medicine. That was the original medicine given to the monastics. I remember once I was in California, where else? And uh, there was, a, I was invited to attend a, the creation of a sema, which is the sacred boundary 
in a, a monastery uh, in, in those days, it was outside of Los Angeles. And it was all monks and it was just me, which seems to happen quite often. But not here, I have now Ayanimala with me. Uh, and um, the monk there, was he was from Burma, and he, I can't, I'm sorry I can't remember his name, but I didn't really stay there very long and didn't know the... Uh, the abbot that well but he had bottles of fermented urine in his cupboard and during my stay there I got really really sick so he offered me this fermented cow's urine and I, I knew this is the medicine that's appropriate for monastics so I very gratefully took the bottle and put some in a cup, and the smell was so awful. And I thought, I just have to drink this, because this is, this is what my teacher, this is what the Buddha instructed us to take, and this is what's available. <laughs> <laughs> so on trust, I drank it, and my fever was gone in no time. It was really wonderful. And I realized, well, why not? I mean... Why would the Buddha give us instructions to use things to follow a map if it doesn't if these medicines or instructions don't really work or apply or aren't accurate he would never instruct us in this way and so with this map to freedom from suffering it's because it works that we can trust. He gave this instruction, and because it works, we can trust it. We trust that this path that he taught, this wheel of truth that he began turning so many centuries ago, works. And there are innumerable disciples through the centuries who have successfully walked this path and gained complete freedom or even part freedom, or some wisdom to help them in their life. But we have to follow the instructions. Sounds like when you go to the doctor. If you have uh, an illness, an infection, and you're given antibiotics, we're told to take the whole course, not part of it. If you don't take the whole course, then we could do ourselves some damage. I'm not a doctor, so I don't understand why. But the Buddha was the greatest doctor because the body cannot really be made perfect, no matter what we do to it. This is my opinion. You may not um, believe this, but you can test it out. You might be able to be Uh, beautiful for a few years and then it starts to fade. We might be healthy for up to a certain point and then that starts to fade. The body might stand upright for uh, 50, 60, 70 years and then it starts to, to droop or sag or something or wrinkle it doesn't last. And then eventually it falls apart. 
It's impermanent. So the body can never be perfected. But we can make whole and heal the mind. The perfection of the mind is possible. If we give ourselves wholeheartedly to this work, then we can succeed. But if we don't, we might wish it as long as we want, but we will not realize the ending of suffering. So let us all make that aditana, a determination, a resolve to test the water, just like I tested that medicine and it worked. And for the last, I've been meditating for 42 years, and it works. But there's still a long way to go. So start now. Continue now. Every moment is a new moment. If the body is strong or weak, that doesn't matter. The mind to be strong, that's important. Use patience, renunciation, giving up the things that don't support us. Bring up the joy, the gratitude for the chance to do this. How many people even know that there is this path through the wilderness of the heart? We are the, among the lucky few. And don't go trying to spread the good news. Because people, you know, they don't, they have to kind of come to it themselves. The best way to spread the news is to be like the Buddha, to be like a a son or a daughter of the Buddha. Not because uh, we're not creating some kind of a cult. It's just, this is pure reverence, delight. It's a way of honoring this most magnificent teacher, the greatest doctor, the greatest psychologist as well, who understood the minds of human beings thoroughly and could offer human beings a way, a true escape from suffering. But it isn't an escape from responsibility. So to talk about inalienable rights, this, is, this path also comes with responsibility. And it doesn't give us the kind of equal rights that we fight for on a worldly level, but it gives us equal opportunity. Because equal rights are based on wrong view of self, and we won't go there too much. If we're identified with the body, we want equal rights. But if we're not identified, if we're understanding the true path, then we know there's an equal opportunity for all those who can understand the way to cultivate the path, to follow it. We all have an equal right and ability to follow that, to cultivate it, develop it, nurture it, and fulfill it in this very life.
to tell you a little story. When I was uh, 23, uh, I met a, a teacher in India, and his, he was mostly called Baba. And he was truly a sage. And uh, I became his student. And I had so much gratitude towards this teacher. And though his temple was in a very dried out area and a pretty unpleasant part of India, it was the sort of place you would go if you want to hire a murderer. <laughs> Truly. So, tour- not a place for tourists to go. But I went there as a spiritual seeker. And uh, staying, even staying, and eventually, actually, he was, he was killed. He was shot by one of his students. Um, but that's a whole other story. But what I wanted to tell you was that uh, I, want, I had some kind of insight while I was there, and I wanted to bring him an offering of flowers. And I couldn't find any flowers because it was a very dry place. There were no gardens. It was mostly desert. But I was walking through the little tiny garden outside his kuti, or his meditation space, and I noticed he, had, he loved roses. There were some roses there. And I, I knew that those can't be picked because he's cultivating them, he's growing them, and he waters them. So I thought, how will I ever offer my wonderful teacher, flowers. And high up in a tree, I noticed some blooms, but I couldn't reach them. So I decided to shake the tree. And whatever fell out of the tree, I thought that I would bring to the teacher. But the only thing that fell out of the tree um, were kind of withered flowers. So. These were, you know, the trees that grow in really dry places, the flowers don't come down so quickly. They're very, very tough. So I found some children, and I spoke the local language, and I said to them, would you climb up that tree and get those flowers for me? And they said, sure, no problem. And up they went, and down they came, and they brought me this magnificent branch with flowers. And I, I thanked them, and I rushed in and bowed and offered them to the teacher. And he completely ignored me. And I thought, well, what have I done wrong? I couldn't understand it. I wanted, you know, not thank you, but some kind of nod or some kind of acknowledgement. And uh, I thought, I've got to do this. I've done something that isn't, Right, and it's like a Zen koan, you know, it took me a while to figure it out. So I went back outside, and I looked at the tree, and I realized that I didn't actually bring him those flowers. I didn't do any work to get those offerings. They were somebody else's offering. So then, I was wearing a sari at the time, so it was very hard to climb up. I wasn't going to try to climb up that tree. But I walked to, across a moat. There was a ditch, and it was very hard to clamber up the other side. I did that, and then I circled the tree from the back, and I saw one branch 
that was just within reach. And I stretched and stretched and hung off the edge of another branch and I finally caught hold of a bit of it, broke it off and brought it to the teacher. And then he picked it up and put it on the shrine. And it was a wonderful teaching. It was like, do your own work. Whatever you offer, however simple it is, let it come from your own effort. And if you give it with love and gratitude and humility, not because somebody else made it possible, having uh, toiled even, having struggled, but been patient enough and creative enough and interested enough, curious enough to know where the beauty can be found and to bring it into your own heart, to offer it up on the shrine, to present it to the teacher. This will be of great benefit and merit for you and for all of us. Thank you so much for listening. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.